Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 21, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. First, speaking about an, an esteemed and a special event that will be presented this week in Orange County are Ashley Bancher, Ben Harris, and Kat Stanley, all of whom are with the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. Some of you may have heard my previous interview with TAPS member volunteer Don Lipstein in June 2012. You know what a standout organization TAPS is. The podcast of that interview is available on my askaleader.com website. The second part of the show will have on climate change lobby members Mark Tabbert and Chris Hilger with the wind breaking all their way after all the hard work that they've continued to do. I'm glad to cover these topical developments today. The two academics that I'd previously promised you, Greg Schaffer and Sergios Caperdas, will be on with me next week. Don't worry. We'll be right back after a short station break. Stay with us. Well, right on John Coltrane with Summertime and that lovely saxophone cadenza. Welcome back to the show. My first guests are Ashley Fancher, Ben Harris, and Kat Stanley, all of whom are affiliated with Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, from now on, which will be mainly referred to as TAPS. It is a good day to bring them on as TAPS will be hosting a retreat in Orange County this Thursday through Saturday, July 23 through July 26 for surviving military siblings. You'll hear all the details on today's show, but first, let us introduce my three guests. Ashley Fancher is the surviving sister of Army National Guard Sergeant First Class John Hennon. And Ben Harris is the surviving brother of Marine Lance Corporal Michael Harris. They are joined by Kat Stanley, Program Coordinator at Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, and surviving sister of Corporal Richard Algauer. Ashley Fancher is, a tw- we don't usually bring up ages, but this is what her little short bio includes here, 29 years old and lives in Sulphur, Louisiana. She's married and has two little girls. She's a certified K-12 through school certified in for for K-12 school counseling. She is the surviving sister, as I said, of Army National Guard Sergeant First Class John Hannon, who died in June 2007 in Afghanistan. Ben Harris has a BA in Creative Writing, English from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. He's the surviving brother of Marine Corporal Michael Harris, who died by suicide in February of 2012. Kat Stanley currently serves as a project for a coordinator for TAPS retreats. Uh, she was a member, a, a volunteer, and now and she was so sold on this, had such gratifying experience, she's become part of the staff. She assists in planning therapeutic adventure retreats throughout the country, one of which will be here, as I said, this week. She earned her, earned her undergrad degree in marketing at the University of Texas. She followed her interest in sports and began a career with the men's basketball team at the University of Texas. In the summer of 2009, her older brother, Corporal Richard Allen Algauer, an active-duty Marine, was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. After he passed away in August 2010, Kat and her family were introduced to TAPS, where she became uh, profoundly impacted, and uh, as I said, she's transitioned from being a volunteer to a staff member. Ashley comes to us from Sulphur, Louisiana. Ben comes to us today from Atlanta, Georgia. And Kat, where are you coming from? From Austin, Texas. Austin's still there. She's making her way, though. She will be here. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Ashley, Ben, and Kat. Thank you very much, Claudia. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I, first of all, I'd like to take stock of all three of you who grieved the loss of your brothers. I, I do that in the beginning. I'll give you an opportunity to talk a bit more about each one of them, but I want to lay out what special brand of a, an organization that TAPS is, so people put in the context of what your role is from your experience. First, TAPS welcomes anyone who's grieving the death of someone who died in the military. It TAPS helps families who've experienced loss from combat, suicide, terrorism, homicide, negligence, accidents, and illness, and survivors include mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, fiancés, and other relatives of those who died. And TAPS is uniquely pairs its 
volunteer members with comparable survivors of these military losses. So if it was suicide and a sibling, then they pair a volunteer with a new survivor of a sibling who died of suicide or with uh, cancer or with an active combat. So this pairing is an essential component of what TAPS is. I want now to bring in what each of these three, can, you both, all three of you could briefly talk a bit about your, your brothers as family members and as young men in the military. We can start, let's start with Ashley, please. Okay. Um, my brother was uh, a complete prankster. He was always the life of the party. Um, everybody got along with him. Uh, he had the hugest heart, though. Um, when you got a when you were one of those lucky people to actually really get in and to be able to sit with him and talk with him, he had a huge heart, uh, loved spending time with his family. And he serving our country was not just a job to him. He did it passionately. Okay. How about you, Ben? Well, um, my little brother, Michael, was eight years younger than me, and uh, we had all had to grow up fast already because we'd lost my dad and uh, another little brother, Christopher in the years previous. Um, but despite all of this, Michael was always super quick-witted and very quotable. Uh, one of his friends described him as a walking Snapple top. Huh? He always had some kind of a witty combat uh, comeback or a ridiculous one-liner, um, but he was always very rich with laughter. Uh, when my house was broken into in June of 2011, oh, he offered to ground the perimeter for me yes. with, uh, with trenches and concertina wire. And, uh, Unfortunately, I failed to take him up on the offer. Wow. Um, but at the same time that Michael had such a wonderful sense of humor, he also had an incredibly strong sense of duty and purpose. Uh, when he left Emory University, where he was attending as well, to go join the Marine Corps, he was encouraged by lots of people to wait and join as an officer, where he was assured he'd be much less likely to be in the direct line of fire. But Michael refused. He wanted to serve on the front lines where he could get that experience and uh, serve with the men that he wanted to build a career with. It was at Michael's funeral that some of the men he served with presented me with a small American flag that Michael had kept on his person the entire time that he was in country in Afghanistan. And he had never said a word about this flag to anybody, but he always kept it on him. And if you could give us, to the extent you could, where he died of suicide, was that where he was serving in combat, or was that when he had returned to the States? He had made it home safely from his deployment to Afghanistan, Claudia, and had been struggling with PTSD for probably about half of a year um, before he ended up dying by suicide. Um, so he was at his barracks, um, on base back in North Carolina, uh, but he had been struggling with symptoms that prevented him from sleeping for longer than an hour at a time, and, and he was doing all the right things that we want to see from our our uh, servicemen and women when they come back and find themselves struggling with PTSD. Uh, so he was seeking help from the psychiatrists on base and um, looking into counseling there. But unfortunately, the system allowed him to fall through the cracks. And that is where you, Ben Harris, perhaps are in a very particular position to help new survivors grapple with that. I don't know if there's any way you can also help members of families who are worried about PTSD affecting their loved ones, their siblings, as you saw your brother being affected by that. If there's something on the other side that uh, you could could intervene, or I, I know that TAPS is all about after someone has passed away, but it sounds like you might be able to assist families so that their loved ones don't fall through the cracks and end up the way your brother did. Well, we hope that by sharing the stories of our loved ones and by always encouraging people back to back to TAPS as a resource, that we can help shatter some of the stigma around suicide um, and around PTSD and encourage 
our servicemen and women to go get the help that they deserve and that they warranted. Yes. Okay. We'll get, uh, yes. I was going to say, as as many people know, we have lost more men and women to suicide who were serving um, in our military since the beginning of the Afghanistan war over the last few years than we actually lost from war itself. And that so, means that's over, I think, over 5,000, is it not? It is. I mean, you combine the, those who've fallen in Iraq as well as in Afghanistan. So, And that, it's been brought up as people are a bit terrorized with some of the the shootings that have occurred on the bases as recently as last week and the the most the highest incidents of deaths are are the higher incidents are by far the suicides and that where we ought all of us to be training our thoughts and our where we can direct our support and all of our energies so that's part i i we were talking about siblings who've died of different causes here so i'm um, this wasn't the central theme, but it's a very important thing to to raise for people to consider. So let's let now Kat Stanley talk a bit about her brother. Absolutely. Thank you, Claudia. And I just want to touch base a little bit about what Ben mentioned is that um, TAP primarily does focus on um, surviving family members, but we also have a big arm in the suicide prevention as well. And if anybody does have any questions and just isn't sure where to go, they're more than welcome to reach out to us. And we, we definitely have some great partner organizations that we can put them in touch with as well. Um, so just wanted to, to rebound off of what he said. Um, but my brother, Richard, was two and a half years older than me. And, you know, I was just his little shadow growing up. And he was one of those kids that if mom said the stove was hot, don't touch it. He had to touch it and see how hot it was. Um, so he kind of zigzagged his way through life a little bit, dabbled in, in college after he graduated and then eventually joined the Marine Corps. Um, a little on the goofy side, he was a little bit older than a lot of the recruits coming in, so kind of fell into that big brother role and um, graduated at the top of his platoon and, and just fell in love with the Marine Corps and serving his country. And and really found his niche and deployed in 2007 and was stationed um, out in California at Camp Pendleton when he was diagnosed with a brain cancer and and had uh, an incredibly inspiring and courageous fight with cancer for more than a year before he eventually passed away. And um, August 15th, 2010, this year will be five years for us. So. Okay. And so in your capacity, you're... You're paired when you were a volunteer, and to some extent as a, a, a coordinator now, you're paired with people who, loved ones, whose siblings have died from cancer, and maybe the cancer is something, are they attributing to some battlefield conditions, and you can talk to that, or is that a bit too specific? You know, it's um, it's something that's definitely crossed our mind, but not a path that we went too far down just because there were, you know, a lot of questions. And at the time, um, we were just focused on, on getting him healthy and, and really haven't dug too too much further into it. But you're right. We, um, I, um, as a volunteer, was paired with a girl who, um, about the same time out, she lost her brother just a year after I did, and he came back from deployment with a few medical injuries and eventually passed away stateside. So um, it's, we try to pair up, obviously, with circumstance and also time out from death because when we say it taps is that, you know, grief never ends. Your journey just kind of changes to so somebody a year out from their loss is experiencing different emotions, you know, five years out from their loss and 10 years out from their loss. And so there's just a really powerful connection that can be made not only just from the, the circumstance, but also the time since um, the death of their loved one. One thing when I was preparing, um, Kelly, working with you there at TAPS, has given me vocabulary, which I want to cover all the vocabulary from the three of years' experience. You're retooling our expression. It's not committed suicide. Commit is something that you do that is a transgression. It's against something. Uh, died of suicide is one way of bringing up uh, what their this person's demise is. I I would like for all three of you to guide us with vocabulary that better equips us to deal with what survivors are dealing. Claudia, you uh, absolutely nailed it with the shift in terminology from from committed suicide to died by suicide. 
And this was something that I, of course, you know, learned as a result of the experience that we've had with my brother. So I know that it's new to a lot of people to think about it in this way. But when you look at the issue from the invisible wounds front that these men and women experience as a result of uh, what they've what they've seen um, in war, it it helps cast a new light on the topic, um, showing that it's that PTSD is a disease. It's an illness that these men and women struggle with a lot of times, and by referring to it as died by suicide, it kind of gives credit to this fact, this idea that that it is a disease that they're suffering from. And much like you wouldn't say somebody committed cancer or they died by cancer, in a similar way, this kind of shines a little bit of light on the, uh, on the origins of, these, of this illness. More, more like for your brother, somebody committed bad paperwork. <laughs> exactly. So how about other in between you three other kinds of vocabulary and I've talked about this with other guests other veterans that have been on this program and maybe with Don Lipstein too is when we're we see a gold a yellow a gold star on someone's bumper of their car or we, we we're made aware that somebody's lost someone what are the words uh, that you find need to be replaced with something much better that there is an allowance for people to approach them and take stock of that. We're not to ignore when we've got cues that they are grieving. I think an important motto at TAPS is um, remember the love, celebrate the life, share the journey. And that's the biggest thing is that we all had brothers, loved ones that were a huge part of our lives. And our society can sometimes be a little bit uncomfortable with, with death and grief and don't want to make you sad by bringing up their name. And I think that that's what TAPS really empowers the survivors to do is to continue to talk about their loved one and to celebrate the life just because they're gone doesn't mean that the love we shared needs to be that chapter closes it still very much remains open and I think that that's a big thing for survivors on the retreats is that they're given the permission to say their loved one's name without kind of getting that deer in headlights look of you know is is she going to start crying is this going to get awkward And, and I would encourage anyone that knows someone that lost a loved one to continue to talk about them. And even if, even if the person starts to get emotional, we love them and we miss them. And it's okay to cry sometimes, but a lot of times along with the memories will come laughter and a great big smile. Um, so I would, I would focus, I would, I would encourage people. Um, that would be kind of my, my little nugget um, for a shift of, of perspective and attitude. How about you, Ashley? Um, mine would probably be the word grief in general. Um, it's quite the contrary to what some people might think. We're not sitting in a corner, you know, crying our eyes out. But if we are, then that's okay too. But sometimes, it, you know, it, it's a process. And, and people think that with time, everything just gets better. And it doesn't. Um, I think with time, you learn to continue to live. You learn to cope. Uh, I know my brother, uh, this past June was eight years, and um, I was actually thinking yesterday about how there's little details that I'm starting to forget. Um, and so with time comes new hurts, even. Um, but with TAPS, I learned that, that during the few retreats that I've been to, my very first one was just a huge um opening door to even my healing process in general. And, I mean, I found TAPS five years into my brother, after my brother's death. Wow, that's a while. Um, it is. Um, I, w- I was young. <laughs> um, we buried my brother on my 21st birthday, so I was young mm. um, and sheltered my entire childhood. Oh. So I just didn't quite understand um, a lot of the process. And, and so I did. I found them kind of later into my process, but it completely... Um, jump-started my entire healing process. Um, I learned that it was okay for me to cry. It was okay for me to have days where I was angry or, you know, um, upset. And and it was even okay for me to be angry at my brother at times. Yes. Um, But in my second retreat that I went to, a whole different aspect was introduced to me. It was okay for me to live again. It was okay for me to smile. 
it was okay for me to laugh. Yes. My brother can't live anymore, but that doesn't mean that I have to stop. And so the best thing that I could do to honor him is to continue living because he can't. And and to assist others to keep their connection with their loved ones. Yeah. So if you've joined us just now, my guests are Ashley Fancher, whose voice you're just hearing, Ben Harris, they're volunteer members of TAPS, and Kat Stanley, formerly a member, now staff member of TAPS, mean uh, shorthand for Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, an organization which is hosting a retreat this week in various locations around Orange County. That's June 23rd to June 26th. Maybe, Kat, you could tell us what uh, you're trying to get in touch with as many siblings and members of the uh, of members of the military who've died uh, to come to this retreat. Um, this would include mainly those brothers and sisters who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, or are you? Uh, it's opening up to people that uh, whose lives were lost. It could be PTSD from a much older war. Absolutely. So we, um, it's. The way our retreats are structured, we have several different events that we're offered that are offered through TAPS. That specifically, retreats are more population oriented. So we'll have either a siblings retreat that's reserved just for siblings, or we just had a parents retreat actually last week that just wrapped up here as well for only parents. Well, we we have seminars where I could you know go with my parents, and it's a one stop shop for any relationship. But on these retreats, we want to get that population together because, you know, like we mentioned earlier, there's that connection of, okay, their siblings, their brother was in the military. Um, the retreats, we they are required to sign up beforehand, but we have, we're already looking forward to 2016. Um, so it's something that we would definitely love for any siblings to come and join us next year. This is our last retreat for this year, but um, it's already the end of July and, and we'll be, we'll be gearing up for 2016 very, very soon. So if, um, if anyone is a surviving sibling or knows of a surviving sibling or parent, we also have um, more general population retreats. So we'll have a men's retreat in Montana this, later this year. So if Ben wanted to bring his dad or if he had another brother or an uncle, that, that's something that they could come to together. So we have all of our events listed on our website. So the, the retreats are these our three-day um, adventure a little bit smaller, intimate scale. We'll have about 30 to 40 participants that just get out and kind of push themselves outside of their comfort zone physically. And, and we find that there can be really strong connections that can be made when when those walls that we put up in our daily lives are kind of broken down by these physical challenges. Well, just we'll hasten to say that the, the website is www.taps.org for uh, information and on my uh, summary for the KUCI website announcing today's program, the link as long as while this is still posted for today's show, you can go directly in that summary is the link for this particular retreat. It starts on the 23rd. Uh, that's at the Newport Beach Pier. And then the, there'll, there'll be some events, a lot, uh, hiking, as you said, adventure hiking at Crystal Cove. And that is one of the that is one of the pearls of our county. I'm so glad you found it and chose that. <laughs> now I'm I'm wondering maybe all three of you could address this. We, uh, you decide amongst yourself who starts. That how many siblings are you in contact with also served in the military? I um, this is that are, that are still that are survivors themselves and yes. also active duty. Correct. You know, I I personally haven't been in contact. I can think of one offhand that I know. His brother was killed in Afghanistan, and he's still um, active duty. But I think um, this might be a generalization, but I think those guys are so committed, or guys and girls are so committed to their, their duty that, you know, they might be putting their, their grief kind of on hold for their current mission of, of protecting our country, protecting our freedom. Um, and that's, you know, that mindset is absolutely why they signed up for the job. But I can't think, Ben and Ashley, y'all might have a little bit different experience. What Please. do you guys think? Uh, well, Ben, our first uh, retreat, uh, Bill was actually, um, he, he's a veteran, and his brother Jason was killed um, in July of 2007. So and I stay in contact with him. Um, so 
it's uh it, it's kind of different like he's one of those people that um that we talked to um and there there was a guy cat uh, maybe you remember his name um it was the older gentleman that came to our retreat in Austin. Uh, yes, that's the one I was thinking well. of. Mm-hmm. He had served as well. Um, and so it, it was during our retreat, uh, some of the terminology that we don't understand as as siblings who have right. not served, they were able to clear up some of that stuff for us because there were questions that we had that some of us don't feel comfortable asking you know, people that we we maybe don't trust, but another sibling who has gone through what we've gone through and they know the terminology and they can help us better understand that, um, that that was wonderful for me. That's good. Ben? or No, Ashley, if you want to finish, sorry. Give you a moment to pause, but uh, you had something oh, no. to add? No, it's okay. Ben can go. Yes, Ben? <laughs> I... Uh... Have you been in Similar touch with to what them? Ashley and Kat said? I've been to uh, several TAPS retreats that have included a handful of uh, servicemen who are currently uh, still currently engaged with the military, and and that are also coming through some of TAPS programming. So it's always a pleasure to get to know them and to add them to our to our family of TAPS siblings. And Claudia, if I could just um, chime in and say that we do, you know, like as you mentioned earlier, we are an open forum for any relationship. So we do also, if there is anybody who um, necessarily wasn't related to a loved one that passed away but maybe served with them, they are more than welcome to um, any tax resources. We're we're absolutely here for them. And another way, if anybody wanted to get involved with TAPS, we have good grief camps where if um, anyone under the age of 19 lost someone that was serving in the military. They're paired up with an active duty military member during these good grief camps, and they're their mentor for the entire weekend. And just to see the bond that happens over the weekend and to see how they keep in touch, we've heard from a lot of our peer mentors who are currently serving that it is just incredibly rewarding for them and kind of their own therapy um, to be able to be there for the, the, the kids that are left behind. So definitely some opportunities for anybody that's interested. Well, that is remarkable. And that, the, that particular one, when would be another? Is that going to be in 2016 where you'll have those particular uh, retreats? Those are in conjunction with our regional seminars. And we have one coming up. I believe I don't think it's passed it in Camp Pendleton in September. Um, so I know, obviously, right there with all the Marines. Um, so yes. We'll have, we definitely have a couple more of those that will be open throughout the year. And the same thing, it's um, org, and that, those will be our, our regional seminars and good grief camps where they can sign up to be a peer mentor. Very fine. For those of you who jo- just joined us, we're wrapping up uh, this special portion of the show with my guest, Ashley Fancher, Ben Harris. They are volunteer members, Kat Stanley, staff member, formerly a volunteer member uh, with the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, an organization they are hosting a retreat this week, starting out in the, the Newport Beach at the pier. Uh, that we And then uh, there's Dana Point venue, Crystal Cove venue. There, it's all over the place. Now, Ben is going to be speaking. I believe you'll be at the retreat? I will be. And Ashley's plans have changed, so she will not be in this particular one. And Kat will be uh, running the control board from, the, from mm-hmm. Austin. I don't, Kat, are you coming out? I actually flew out a couple of days early, um, so I'm, I'm already here in California. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I am here. Oh, so you're not coming to us from Austin, though? That was, that's well, your. I okay. I flew in from Austin. Well, I, that's home. <laughs> okay, right, right, right. Okay, well, it's a marvel what you keep doing, and I know there's more to say with with your experiences. Uh, we'll we'll keep an open invitation to when perhaps a traumatic development occurs and it's that you're the only ones who can provide the bomb for for the public to process what be going on i know that you're you're you have to uh, you've got uh, fort hood and, and now the the chattanooga bases you can pair those survivors i suppose is that what you've been already doing cat absolutely what initially happens when there is a new loss is that we have a survivor outreach team or survivor services care team that will reach out to those families and just offer their condolences early on because there's just, you know, an onslaught of emotions and it's just an emotional, busy, overwhelming time. And then they'll stay in contact with their survivors and let them know all the resources that we offer, our magazine, our online 
community care, if they need any casework, our retreats, our seminars. So our first kind of line of defense is our, our survivor uh, services team that will reach out to those families. All right. It's wonderful that you're doing that. And I want to thank Ashley Fancher, Ben Harris, and Kat Stanley, who are missing, respectively, John Hennon, Michael Harris, and and Richard. Is it Algower? Algower. 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 They're the brothers whose lives were lost after having served in the recent Iraqi and Afghanistan uh, theaters there. I want to thank you all very much for being on the program, and we'll stay tuned with as uh, new things occur related to your organization and what what developments uh, might require you to help us with the trauma we may have to experience somehow in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for having us, Claudia. Thank you. All yes, the best. Thank you. Thank you very much, Claudia. Thank you and all the success this week uh, over the retreat. Take care. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after a station break and bring on Mark Tabert and his colleague at the Citizens Climate Change Lobby, Chris Hilger. Be right back. Thank you for staying with us here on Ask a Leader. Welcome back to the show. My next guests are Climate Change Lobby members Mark Tabert and Chris Hilger with some of the inroads that they are making with the Carbon Tax Initiative, especially as they experience uh, some tailwinds, I'm going to say, with people in high places. Chris Hilger, when he is not a criminal defense lawyer, he pitches climate change policy fixes and messages alongside Mark Tabert. Over several decades, Chris Hilger has served as a deputy public defender in Tulare County, senior deputy public defender in Orange County, and has over these last five years been in private practice. He's put in the mentoring time in his capacity as a teacher of mock trials for the Constitutional Rights Foundation, and most recently, he worked on the L.A. County Bar Association Immigration Project. Bravo! He completed his bachelor's degree at Antioch College in Ohio and his law degree at Golden Gate Law School in San Francisco. Returning to the show is Mark Tabert, co-founder of the Newport Beach area chapter of the Citizen Climate Lobby. Mark served in the U.S. Army and Special Services. His first 20 years of business were allied with sales in the steel industry, and later he became a self-employed broker in different fields, eventually retiring from a career as a business broker, buying and selling small and medium-sized businesses. He tried his hand at municipal politics in Newport Beach City Council. That was back in 2009. Didn't work, but we sure wish he was on now with what some of the kerfuffles are occurring currently. But the the rock and roll and tumble of that campaigning must have prepared him for other aspirations, just the likes of the Citizens Climate Lobby that he co-founded with Craig Preston, Newport Beach. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Chris, and welcome back, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we have a lot of topical development since Mark was back on, since uh, Bruce Tierney and Mary Klumick were back on. And uh, as I, I'm not sure I did get to mention it at the top of the show, Governor Brown was with the Pope. We know he's back now with the messages that are pretty similar to what you all have been talking about with citizens' climate change. So let's first hear from both of you about how the Pope, with his encyclical letter, has offered you some talking points from a very rarefied domain. The the two themes that the Pope focused on in his encyclical was, uh, number one, that the world, the the environment was in danger and that the danger was getting greater each day. And the second theme that he stressed was that poor people were going to face most of that, the, the bulk of that danger in their daily lives. They were going to suffer uh, loss of their, their livelihoods. They were going to suffer losing their homes and uh, having to move somewhere else. They were going to suffer through wars that would be fought over uh, limited uh, um, resources. And that, those were the two themes that, that I, I saw as being presented in, in his encyclical. Well, and what does this encyclical letter do in terms of clout and your message in approaching policymakers that we're not necessarily seeing in a public way moving off the dime on uh, into climate change? Well, 30, activism. 
thirty percent of the con- our, our congressmen are are Catholics, and that's very significant. Also, uh, very, a number of the Republicans who are running for president are also Catholic. Uh, actually, before I get to them, uh, Boehner, uh, in the, ho- the the head of the House of Representatives for the Republicans, is, is a Catholic as well. Um, but then also uh, Jindal and B- Bush and um, a number of the Mark other— Mark Rubio. Mark Rubio. They're all Catholics, and this has to have some impact on them. Whether they fundamentally agree with it or not, it ha- it's a message that's being sent to them that they're being asked to at least digest and consider and think about very carefully. So it's sort of give it, you're seeing it as giving them cover to, to sort of move off of the orthodoxy that's constrained their— speaking more adamantly about this phenomenon. I couldn't have said it better. That's right. Well, I don't know. I'm sure you could. I'm sure. <laughs> so we'll, we'll break this down a little bit more. But, Mark, you've, you have a lot of experience now. And are you seeing that the encyclical letter, it's given you verbiage, it's given you metaphors, it's giving you clout. In what ways are you seeing that changing your conversations with policymakers and their staffs? Well, Claudia, when we met with Congress uh, at the end of June, the encyclical just came out days before that. Wow. So we did not really spend a lot of time talking about that aspect of it. But you said we'll be back. (laughs) We will be back. Uh, In fact, we have three lobbying trips planned for next year. Um, But the thing I like to say at this point is that out of all the conversations we had, and we met with over 500 members of Congress, only 7% of the conversations brought up the subject of science. Several congressmen said denial is way overstated uh, in the media today, and I totally believe that based on my personal conversations and others and other conversations with others. So, when you say it's overstated, who gets to uh, to what would you attribute that? There's there they are they get the mic whenever they want it. So, what's happening with that? Why is that disparity of an or that uh, cognitive dissonance in dissonance in the in the public arena. They've been winning elections based on one point of view for a long time now, denying climate science publicly. And if you look at the people running for Congress, only Lindsey Graham is admitting that climate change is a real thing to think about and worry about and do something about. Um, as to the political equation, I can't really answer the question. But I, te- I totally believe that Republicans are going to make a change much sooner than people would think. So you're saying... With talking points, the Republican Party's uh, adherents are very disciplined about staying on message, and so that there it takes some real conscious, concerted efforts to retool that message to get whatever kind of a nuanced step away from that orthodoxy. That's right. I mean, I look at. We know from past conversations with Congress now that there are 50 members of the Republican Party that would sign on to a bill like we support. But we don't have yet a leader that we trust with those 50 names. And that's who we're looking for. Wow. Uh, we, we, need a, we need someone that we really think will stand up. There are Republicans now that are talking about climate change, especially a, a, a young congressman, brand new congressman down in Florida, uh, Corbello, no. okay. who's come out which and admitted climate change is a problem. We should be doing something about it. Which There's district? also one in New York State. Um, what, um, what district is he in? Is it, and if you look at his district on a map, yes. it looks like the Everglades. Okay. It picks up a small part of Miami, I guess a populated okay. part, because you know he's got the same number everybody else does. So I'm thinking demographically and geographically. That's, that constituency is begging for uh, some literacy on this. Right. The Hispanic community, the Latinos, are the biggest majority of people that understand this climate science and want to do something about it. It's like 90 percent. Okay. So, um, and I'm going to get back to some of those specifics, some prospects for uh, for that leadership that you're wanting to entrust the movement with those. Um, so, um, let's, well then, well, let's talk about whom you've been meeting with recently. There is in, on your on your dance card, there's a very important man from the Central Valley who's very important in the, the, the congressional leadership. To the extent you can, tell us about the inroads that you're making. I'll make it so general so you can tell us whatever you're able to say now. And you know, as soon as something happens, I'm going to have you right back in front of that mic to tell us what happened. 
The evidence is clear right now that Kevin McCarthy is paying attention to what we're saying. Number two in the House of Representatives. Right. And in the past, I've made four trips to Washington myself since 2013. And year one and year two, we could not even meet with staff. The first meeting we got with Kevin McCarthy's office was last November when we had briefings in the House to discuss our policy behind closed doors. So we met with a young aide for the first time. And the meeting went pretty well, I guess, because this time we were scheduled to meet with Kevin McCarthy himself. Instead of meeting in the district office, we were assigned to go to the Capitol office. McCarthy was expected to be there. As it turned out, he got held up in another meeting. But his senior policy advisor was totally educated on what we were after, on a fee and dividend plan, putting a price on carbon, passing the money all back to citizens. So we had a discussion about the roadblocks that would you know, would be in front of us in terms of dealing with that issue. But we were not dealing with somebody that had not heard about us or was not paying attention to what we were saying. Okay. To the extent you can tell us, what did, what were the marching orders for you and for him? Well, our marching orders or our request of him when we left that meeting was to put a guy named Scott Nystrom in front of the, in front of somebody in Congress. It could be a Republican caucus. It could be McCarthy's office solo. Uh, We don't really care. We want people in the Republican Party to look closely at Scott Nystrom's report, which came out of Regional Economic Modeling Incorporated. And that's the the, uh, report that shows that if we pass a revenue neutral fee and dividend plan, we'll, we'll boost our economy. We'll add jobs to the economy. We'll save lives and we'll and we'll make for more healthy lives. Many many people suffer from coal burning today, for instance, back east much more than out here. Right. And so, if you pass a fee and dividend, so even a, even a congressman like uh, Dana Rohrabacher, who does not believe in climate change, has shown interest in our policy because he knows we deal with just old-fashioned air pollution, ignoring CO two. Okay, so that's the. The beauty of the Citizens Climate Lobby, you're looking for that aspect of policy that your congressional member, your staff, the uh, the congressional uh, appointed, uh, I'm sorry, the congressionally elected person, what what is their area? I mean, we talked about Mimi Walters the last time when, when Bruce and, and when Mary were on the show and talking about sort of familial things. And so McCarthy is going to... He- hear about or keep learning about Scott Nystrom's uh, economic analysis so they can strictly talk from the economic viewpoint of how this is all going to work and so uh, so did you have something that um, I, I don't know if you want to hear more about the economic modeling report oh I think that's I think we can all have that in our on our uh, under our lapel pin to to bring up in any conversation anywhere well one of the first responses if not the biggest response from Republicans to uh, our our proposal is a concern that costs will go up enormously to the, for the public, for all their constituents, if a price is placed, a fee is placed on carbon. This report found that after 20 years, uh, the prices would only go up 1.7 to 2.5 percent, depending on which region of the country you were in. Those, that, that amount of uh, increased cost pr- of prices is pretty much what inflation does on a, in a normal year. So it's not that, that terrible a price to pay, considering that after 20 years under our plan, uh, 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 greenhouse gas emissions will go down 52%, again, according to this, this economic modeling report. Well, tell us, does he consider the, the, in the, the final analysis the offsetting of lowering the carbon emissions, uh, the offsetting of collateral damage you know, we, that we're, uh, we're stemming that the uh, in saltwater intrusion of potable water, I mean, all, all the in- environmental losses, is that part of his equation? Or are we, was that an underestimated piece? No, that, in fact, was not even included in the... Well, yeah, so, so the, much for that 1% or 2%, it can, we can be in the, now it's a gain. Actually, if you study the Nystrom report from our point of view, it's a very conservative report. Okay. And do you get to say that when you're meeting with Kevin McCarthy's staff? 
Yes, we, we do. And also we point out uh, that, in fact, REMI, that's the acronym for the company that did the economic modeling, also does economic modeling for oil companies as well as other government bodies. So it's a very conservative private industry type of, of, of a business that they're in. And it was an independent report. All right. Well, that's and tell us what's the date of that report and what's the title. You gave us Remy's the um, the acronym for uh, who published that. The first the first hearings on this report were done in November, the week before Thanksgiving, in the House and the Senate. Which last year? Last okay, year. Okay, that's fresh. And wow. the uh, so the report came out in June of last year. Okay. So about a year ago, but it took a while to get the that report in front of Congress, but. We had standing room only crowds in the House report. In fact, we turned people away in the House briefing the first time. And then we, uh, and we filled the room, standing room only, in the Senate meeting. We had another meeting in March, and we had another meeting in May. Again, these meetings are private, behind closed doors, Republicans uh, and Democrats in equal numbers just about in each one of those meetings. Um, so it's getting traction. And I and and Kevin McCarthy's office uh, expressed interest in in looking closer at the Remy report. I mean, you've seen so many now, Mark Tabbert. Is there a, a, a kind? Are there indicators that this interest just is getting more and more intense? Just with the, what they're dressed in, how they're looking at you, how much time they're putting on their calendar to be with them. I mean, there, there's got to be some kind of markers that you can assess the uh, the increased interest. To reassure us. Well, Claudia, I feel like I touched on that when I talked about the fact that we couldn't see McCarthy's staff. You, you did, I know. Until eight months ago. And now we're meeting with, you know, we were supposed to meet with him. So, I mean, that's a real, um, but I can tell you that in 2013, when we talked about fee and dividend, people looked at us with a blank stare. Yeah. Where, next where's year, your Grateful Dead tattoo? Right. Okay. The next year in 2014, they were much better versed. It was a much more... Uh, positive experience in terms of feeling like we're making some progress and this and actually even last year we said it was night and day difference and yes. this year it's again that same feeling um, I'm very optimistic that because the majority of Republicans today believe climate change is real and we should be doing something about it that you're going to see something you're going to see a sea change I like to compare it to same-sex marriage it's going to go from no way to automatic and or we could, I'm thinking of like a space probe that uh, that we were getting re- we got really close to Pluto. We could see the f- the fine features there. So you're sort of getting there's clarity, there's a, there's a proximity and that kind of thing. So yeah, all of these things. Well, I for those of you who've just joined us, my guests are climate change lobby members Mark Tabbert and Chris Hilger, uh, posting us uh, some some posting us on some of the news that the. the the breaking of the ground here with policymakers, not just on the state level, but on uh, at the federal level as well. Here on Ask a Leader at KUCI, 88.9 FM, Nervine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org. So uh, let's give Chris Hilger just a minute or two in the t- remaining time to talk about what's brought him. Uh, he's got, certainly his time is claimed with his public defense private practice, but he's still making time because something's going on when he's involved with Citizens' Climate Lobby. Um, you know, I, I really love my life. I love everything about it. I feel very fortunate, and I love my family as well. I, I want to do something more than just exist on this planet. I've, I've always wanted to contribute in some way, um, but climate change always seemed to me to be something that was a hopeless cause. I never thought that it was, would be possible to take part in a successful effort to do something about it. I, and what I did was I, I thought to myself, well, it'll probably happen to someone else somewhere else. It'll never happen to me. Hopefully it'll never happen to my family because I, my family is more privileged than the vast majority of people on this planet. And I left it there, even though that was a very selfish attitude to take. But then I discovered um, Citizen Climate Lobby, and what impressed me about them was two things. Uh, first, The first thing was that they seemed to have a solution that would impact uh, and, and remedy a, a lot of the problems that climate change creates by, uh, with their plan. I thought the plan was a good plan. It seemed I checked with my son, who's an economics professor, and he, he you know, 
he's not an expert on this area, but he he felt that it was it looked like it, it made a lot of sense. But the more important thing was there had to be some group, some organization that wasn't just running around sitting at card tables once in a while promoting it. There had to be something more, a, a very healthy, powerful, uh, motivated group of people who were well-organized and effective. And th- the shock to me was that I found such an organization. I a could- delight and a shock, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not too shocked. It, 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 it's wonderful. It's wonderful uh, to have you back on and uh, to gauge the progress you're making. It It seems that you're only going in one direction, and maybe there's exponential progress in your efforts. Mark? i just like to close by reminding everybody that we're, we're a democracy. And when you look at the... And when you look at climate change, don't think of yourself as a consumer. Think of yourself as a citizen. Every time you write a personal handwritten letter to your member of Congress, it counts. It counts hugely compared to what we might think. And check us out. We're on the web, citizensclimatelobby.org. We're growing rapidly. We've doubled in numbers every year. And we'd love to have you investigate our group. Mark, I want to challenge you to think not in terms of citizens, but constituents, and we'll include more people. We'll get more letters that way. Whatever way, you know, it works for me either way. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to thank Mark Tabert and Chris Hilger for being on the show, posting us on the progress they're making with Citizens Climate Lobby, as I said, locally and nationally around the world. Thank you, both of you, for being on the show today. Thanks, Claudia. Thank you. I want to thank everybody for listening here as we close with my uh, Sonny Rollins global warming tune. Next week, we're going to have on Greg Schaffer. He'll talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and Stergios Skapertis will cover what's going on in Greece, both as a Greek national and a UCI economist. What good fortune we'll have to hear from both of these men. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 